0: First piece of advice would be get a first party data strategy if you don't have one look into things like a customer data platform those tools are you know really a key part of building a first-party data strategy, and then start looking at how are you collecting data? What kind of data are you collecting? And if you're collecting third-party or if you're utilizing third-party data, start thinking about how you're gonna move off of that as quickly as you can. Many companies are sitting on a lot of of first-party data that they're really not doing enough with. They're not being proactive with their first-party data.
1: Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists. And we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting edge marketing strategies and tactics that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants, like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass, Paris Talks Marketing. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Greg Kilstrom, Greg is the Principal and Chief Strategist at GK5A. He's also the author of House of the Customer and the host of the Agile Brand Podcast. Greg, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you. Same here. Greg, it seems that you everything that you do and think about and write about has a customer centricity focus to it. And I'd like to start with thinking about and discussing customer journeys, because now everybody in marketing generally knows what a customer journey is, but most marketers and in particular SaaS marketers who are most of our listeners, most users go through more or less the exact same journey of becoming aware of a product, then getting some interest, converting, getting onboarded. How do you think about the evolution of personalized customer journeys and how can brands take that forward?
0: Definitely. So I think first step is what you described, which is really based on mapping the journey that we know and often that we would like our customers to take, right? So that, you know, customer journey orchestration really started with all of that. But the next evolution of that and the, the next step there is to actually enable customers to take multiple paths to getting to, you know, that end goal, whether that's a conversion or, or, or something else. And so, you know, the first evolution of or customer journey orchestration even was, again, marketers say, okay, we want someone to go here, then here, then here, then here. Where we are today and, and where brands are evolving is, okay, this is what we'd like them to do, but let's give them the options to take their own path. And maybe they prefer getting SMS messages over emails, or maybe they even a different product than uh, what they first looked at is a better fit for them and so let's provide them a next best action or offer or experience that actually guides them and helps them guide themselves to the best fit for them. And I think I think that's really where leading brands are are moving in that direction of it's more a self-guided journey by the customer as opposed to a prescribed one.
1: Yeah, a little bit more like a choose your own adventure. Exactly. Could you give an example for our audience of Really, a well thought through, well orchestrated, personalized customer journey for ideally for some sort of a SaaS or subscription based product.
0: Yeah, sure. So, again, customers may. Make- see an ad let's say they see an ad on social media for a product that fits their needs and so they click on an ad and now all of a sudden the brand is like okay this person wants this maybe it was the base level of a product but this person works for an enterprise and so the company doesn't know that though they they think okay Mm -hmm. this person wants the cheapest possible offering that we have let's get them in the door let's try to close the deal it turns out that person works for a fortune 100 company with you know million you know multi-million dollar budget and a good customer journey and a good orchestrated journey would realize that would you know there would be indications and some kind of there's lots of ways to do this but some kind of propensity model some kind of triggers or, or indicators that say okay yeah this person they came in if, if we look at it from an attribution standpoint like first touch attribution was base level product but as they progress through the journey let's stop sending them information about base level because they're enterprise and they'll you know they'll invest mm-hmm. in a in the top tier if we just give them more information about that so being able to course correct and self adjust through that process means maybe it's not even all automated even maybe at that point um once the the brand understands that this is an enterprise customer they get a phone call or they get an email a customized email mm-hmm. from an account rep that handles enterprise sales and so therefore the automated process and the you know the old school offline process are orchestrated mm-hmm. and integrated together as well
1: yeah i've been poking around with with different tools like uh, mutiny this is really one cool one or you can basically serve you can serve a different version of a homepage to every user that clicks through based on in a matter of milliseconds what you can know about them through enrichment through a third-party enrichment tool like a Clearbit and I've seen this in the wild before and I'll I'll give an example we have well one one agency that's a I think a competitor of ours when I go to their website and I scroll down it says hey hop online you can get a, get a custom marketing report for hop online and they put the name of our agency there and. That's impressive, and I'm surprised how few companies do that because it really gets my attention and of course, I'm doing more of competitive research here, but if I was a real prospect, my propensity to convert, I think would be a lot higher if I saw that I mean it's a little bit of a delight, a moment of delight, yeah, I think
0: so. I think most people respond that way there are some people that may find it creepy or whatever, but honestly yeah
1: and it is it is kind of creepy too, yeah,
0: yeah, but i I mean I guess as a marketer, I've gotten past <laughs> decades ago at this point, but yeah, I, I, am with you. Like I, I would prefer to accelerate the process. I mean, buying, you know, buying enterprise software, let alone anything else, you know, it's, it can be cumbersome. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, the the process is longer. If we can accelerate that process, mm-hmm. let's, let's do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's pivot over to AI and this is everyone's favorite topic right now. generative AI. And ChatGPT, you've also done a lot of writing around this, including the AI and the future of marketing. Is that uh, is that a book or is that an article that, that you've published recently?
0: An article, yeah. I've written i f- I've written a few things. I did write a book, a short guide to AI and marketing as well. So.
1: Yeah. So, what advice would you give me if, let's say, that I'm, I'm a mid-sized SaaS company? I'm leading a marketing team. It's a small, a small team, but we've got a couple of people on performance and we got a couple of people maybe on a, on a creative and branding side. We produce a a fair amount of content. We, we, we blog, we do some premium content and gen AI comes along and I'm thinking, wow, this can really 10 X our productivity. What should I, how should I think about uh, bringing this to my team and what should I watch out for also? Yeah, I mean. Just to take a
0: brief step back, I think this is we we're there's a lot of bright shiny objects that pop up here and there, and you know any anything from the metaverse, I kind of sat that one out, but like you know to to many other things over the years, there's been buzzwords and everything and a i there's a lot of hype around a i it's not a hundred percent justified all the all the great stuff that people are saying about it but i think the key Mm -hmm. difference here is to your question this isn't just a technology that right now is only applying to the for you know the multi-billion dollar companies and maybe eventually Mm -hmm. smaller organizations will be able to benefit from it it is something that is actually practical. It's actually usable. There there are caveats and, and I'll, I'll get to some of those as well, but it is something that a small company, a medium company, a large company, an enterprise, everybody can utilize this. And I think that's why it's taking off and, and why so many people are talking about it because there's different ways of, of looking at it, maybe depending on the organization. But to answer your question directly, I think the first thing is to just think about it from, from a philosophy standpoint. It's, no, AI is not going to replace most of the team members that a small organization has a problem, possibly not any team members that a small organization has at the large enterprise scale. There's some, you know, th- I think there is some, some role replacement that's going to happen there, but with a small or medium company, I think it's more about what is AI going to enable your team to do that they don't get time to do because they're struggling to do just the repetitive tasks the stuff that isn't fun that isn't strategic that isn't really a good use of humans in my opinion you know people are really good at abstract thought and being strategic and you know tying very disparate concepts together to form a new creative concept like Machines are terrible at, at stuff like that, but they're really good at repetitive tasks. They're really good at extracting information, at generalizing and summarizing information, and really good at parsing through mass amounts of data to find specific things. And so when you think about that and, and several other, other benefits, a team like yours, for instance, can start saying, okay, well, what is taking up my time that doesn't require a lot of like creative and, and strategic thought? how can I use a tool to automate that and get it? It's not even getting it 100% there. It's getting it 75, 80% there maybe so that they Mm -hmm. can take it the last 20% and add creativity, add brand, you know, the branded part of the content and all that. But like, how do we get the first draft further? You know, because back in the day, interns would write a lot of content or, you know, lower paid resources would write content. It's not like, the highest paid resource in the company would be doing a lot of this work. You would be using humans to do it, but not using humans for what they're great at doing. And so I would start there is just, you know, start asking some of those questions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You've also thought and published a lot around MarTech stacks and what are, in your opinion, now given Gen AI and Gen AI needs to be part of, I don't know if it's part of the MarTech stack or if it's part of the process could be both, but how does a Gen AI tool fit into a modern Martech stack now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple ways of looking at this and uh, of looking at at how AI fits into the business. And I'm I I'm, I'm writing another book right now on taking a deeper look at this as well. But you know, just some initial thoughts. There's kind of two levels of of AI. I think there's there's the tools like the Chat GPTs, and I don't recommend using those tools a lot for public. Facing content because there are some privacy issues and 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 everything like that, but there are some specialized Mm -hmm. tools or there are some tools that allow you to do some of this stuff locally that doesn't send stuff back to the internet and all that all that kind of stuff. We can some of that gets kind of in the weeds there, but there are tools that can be used to quickly you know create content or generate images or or all of those kinds of things. Those can be very helpful from a let's call it a tactical perspective, and then from a deeper level, there are businesses that need large language models or you know to modify or or adapt large language models of their own in order to run deeper things within the business so there's kind of two levels there if we're really just talking Mm -hmm. at the top level like the more tactical the the tool-based stuff you can use there's a lot of great third parties out there there's a lot of third parties out there but it can be hard to figure out which is the best fit but there's a lot of things that you can use without making a big like in MarTech infrastructure investments. You know, those are just third-party tools that you sign up for a subscription SaaS model stuff. When you start getting into integrating AI into your business, that's when, you know, we we always used to say, you know, people process platform or kind of, it's the three-legged stool or, or things like that. I would add a fourth component to that now, which it would be people process data and platform because AI doesn't work without good data. So if you're doing this at the enterprise level, and you're really, you're building your own custom AI tools. Like you've got to have a very sophisticated data team and data models and, and all those kinds of things as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. to me, that separate data component really needs to work its way into the, the, the thinking in any MarTech or technology infrastructure.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take a quick note about that. People process, data, and then platform. And that kind of leads into the next area that I wanted to discuss with you, which is data. There's now so much massive amount of data that is available, and it started to be referred to as first-party data, which I I guess means that that's the data that you as a company or the brand owns, fully owns, and controls. And the platforms don't actually control that. They don't even have access to it unless you give it to them. I've been a huge proponent for the last year or so about providing first-party data access to the platforms in a a data privacy-centric way, in a, a mindful way so that those platforms can make use of that data and that you can action the data. What are you seeing around first-party data these days? And, and how are you advising companies about how to use mountains of first-party data that they're that they're sitting on?
0: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is if you don't have a first-party data strategy, I think a lot of brands are behind the ball on this whole third-party cookie deprecation mm-hmm. thing and, and everything. So, you know, first first piece of advice would be, you know, get a first-party data strategy if you don't have one, look into things like a customer data platform. Those tools are you know, really a key part of building a first-party data strategy. And then start looking at how are you collecting data? What kind of data are you collecting? And if you're collecting third-party or if you're utilizing third-party data, start thinking about how you're gonna move off of that as quickly as you can. It doesn't mean you need to move off of it today, but it, it means you need to have a plan for that very soon and so utilizing first party data i mean i think personalization as as we talked about earlier like there's there are great ways to use the first party data that you already have in terms of what you show a customer how you talk with them there are also let's you know let's get a lot smarter with how we target customers with offers and, and content and so you can build propensity models that say, okay, you know, show me all the customers that took similar actions to this audience segment and start targeting them with customer offers and things. I don't think enough is being done in that like predictive analytics space right now. But to your mm-hmm. point, many brands, many companies are sitting on a lot of of first-party data that they're really not doing enough with. They're, you know, they're maybe making some reports with it, but they're not being proactive with their first-party data.
1: Yeah. I agree. And I tend to think it's because right now, third-party data, third-party cookie-based data still is available and it works for a lot of brands. They're getting, at least in advertising, they're getting a positive return on ad spend, which is based largely on that third-party cookie data. So why mess with a good thing? And maybe they don't fully appreciate what's coming when that goes away. And and I also think that the, the platforms, and let's start with Google here, I don't think Google has been giving um, a lot of good advice about Specifically, what is going to replace third-party cookies, and what what companies ought to be doing to prepare for the the post-third-party-cookie world? And maybe it's just a matter of having this really slap people in the face when it does happen, and then and then they're gonna they're gonna be forced to activate and, and build first-party data strategies after it happens.
0: Yeah, I mean it's you know it's it's an interesting. I mean, Google's obviously in a very interesting position. Because, I mean, they they made a couple of false starts with. Their solution to you yeah. know the third-party cookie issue, they also stand to gain, if not the most, one of the most. You know, they stand to gain you know, very, very much. So, in whatever the outcome is, and so their yeah. their position again, I don't, I haven't talked to anyone, you know, anyone at Google specifically about this, but you know, their their position is a pretty good one, a pretty safe one, regardless of what the outcomes are, and they are doing it to. Either they're, you know, they're doing it to themselves or they're doing it to all of us in that, you know, their Chrome is, the Chrome deprecation is really the the thing that we're all talking about, right? You know, because Apple and Microsoft, others have already deprecated or made it harder to collect third-party data. It's really Google Chrome that is the outstanding one here. And some of this, I think, what I hear from some of the larger brands that I talk with and, and even some of the, you know, the, the smaller ones is there is this thinking that, oh, well, you know, someone's going to come along and solve this for us. So we don't really have to make any big action. You know, there's going to be a replacement for cookies and then we just switch from this to that or whatever. And, you know, what I keep saying is that mm-hmm. that's really not this. This is a philosophical shift in how data is used and collected that's very different than okay switch from you know google to bing to search or something like that you know this is it's it's a much bigger change and so companies really need to have a plan and to your point right now third-party data it's cheap it's easy there's no reason to switch off of it tomorrow there's just there there's a big reason though to have a plan and and to be honest When you use first party data well, and when you collect it and when you use relevant first party data to communicate with your customers, I believe that the return on ad spend is going to be higher. And I Mm think, you know, I've seen some stats there. I think it's a little too soon to say it's, it's. You know, completely conclusive, but I've seen some some early stats saying that that's true. That more relevant yeah. third party data is not great. I think great.
1: Uh, we've seen it work a lot with with several clients that have transitioned to value based bidding, but it goes hand in hand with a first party data strategy. And I think the easiest way for a B two B SaaS company to get started with that is simply by connecting your CRM with uh, with Google Ads. And making sure that the CRM does have high-quality data, which probably also means that the salespeople have to be very diligent and have the discipline around updating deal values, probabilities, and having clear stages as, as a deal progresses through the sales cycle. And then the next step could, could be something larger around you know LTV data and things like that, larger historic data. But yeah, there's, there's tons that can happen, and, and, and especially even just to create custom audiences. Another thing that's important here is the switch over to Google Analytics 4. And up until now with, with Universal Analytics, the best practice was really to, these were a little bit siloed, and, and the, the best practice was to bring in audiences into Google Ads specifically and not, not to not to import them from Google Analytics. But with GA4, I think that's different now. It's it's fully integrated with, with Google Ads. And I think that's going to open the door for more um, first-party data integration and segmentation. Being. Yeah. Agreed. yeah. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs and you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. But have you seen any any creative first-party data strategies with any of the companies that you work with? Any Any good examples?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um you know with without naming names i think the the ones that are most successful are the ones that are really focused on delivering value and you know the the last thing a customer wants is to you know they're they're on a company's website that sells food let's say and they start getting asked questions about where they like to go on vacation or you know something that seems completely mm-hmm. unrelated and you know the the best first party data strategy is make it very clear you know we are asking for xyz pieces of information and when we get this you are going to benefit in you know abc ways what whatever it may be i think that's where you know where i've seen a lot of success is really directly tying you know we're asking for this information we're going to use it for for this direct purpose and Mm -hmm. not just trying to because i've also seen in in a bad way i've seen companies just ask for okay well we're going to lose all this third-party data. So we better ask whatever we can about customers so we can start tying things together or drawing some kind of correlations. And Mm -hmm. yes, from a marketer and a a data marketing data person, like, yes, I I love that approach on, on the the intellectual level, I guess, because yeah, we could draw some crazy correlations if we just knew some random bits of information about people, but Mm -hmm. like to, to make it about the customer and to make it valuable for the customer, it's you know, let's, let's find creative ways where again, and somebody benefits by giving us their information, you know, the, the easy one is like, you know, the, the restaurant that asks for your birthday, you know, because they give you a free whatever on your, you know, on your birthday every year or something like that. That's mm-hmm. a very, like, I don't like giving my birthday out to just any company, but like, that's a very practical way to ask for that. And again, simple example, and that's been done for years, but it's like, make it relevant and if I still don't want to do that I won't do it but at least I know immediately what I'm going to get when I give that piece of information versus you know again asking for you know seemingly random stuff even if you have a plan for it so yeah I think you know that that kind of thought and you know there are as companies start expanding into doing more like customer loyalty programs and rewards programs I think asking a broader set of questions also becomes more relevant but again brands can make it clear that, hey, we want to offer you valuable things like tell us a little bit about yourself and we will we can hook you up with these types of ro- rewards yeah. and, and other things like that's that's a very practical way. Again, customer loyalty program has been around for decades. But I think using that that first party data to to make those connections, you know, that that's an easy way for brands to to get the information, use the information and the customer happy to give it to them.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of different Use cases there. One would be to capture it upfront as a so called zero party data as they're signing up for the first time or the customer onboarding right. experience. And the other is to, to tie it into kind of a customer loyalty program and fill in blind spots or gaps in the, the data that you have on your existing customers. But in either case, I do think that, well, customers are certainly sensitive to, to privacy more so now than ever before. But I do think if they have any kind of loyalty, especially if it's, if it's an existing customer, if they have loyalty to a brand, I think that there's already some trust. They're probably more willing to provide some information. If it's zero-party data and I don't have any pre-existing relationship with that brand, as you said, I need to be be convinced that this data that they're asking me is going to help either customize or personalize the product, or it's going to benefit me in some way. So an example there would be, well, how do you intend to use this are you going to use it for for uh, for research? Are you a student, or are you going to have use it for professional use? Or so you can kind of start to bucket people into into personas that way. Um, and and I think it, it does involve a little bit of creativity, but I, I think it's a good idea even for the brand right up front to say we we want to provide you with the best experience possible. So if if we know these things about you, or if you can provide this information, we'll we'll give you a better experience, So we we'll, we will customize the product in some way for your use case. So back to data, one thing that I did want to touch on is the, the connection between, the, between data and platform. There's two big platforms that come to mind for, for this data. One is a data warehouse, the other is, is a CDP, a customer data platform, which is, seems to be the new darling in the MarTech stack. Right. right. How, how do brands think about, do, do I need a data warehouse or do I need a CDP? Do, do I need both? Or um, how, how do you advise companies around that area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's
0: um, looking at it by function in the organization. Like, I think as a as an enterprise, um, they need a data warehouse of sorts. So, you know, because mm-hmm. if you think about, there's all the different components. There's the sales information. There's the customer service information. There's the marketing information. There's the financial information. You know, all, all of that is coming mm-hmm. most, you know, in, in a large company that's probably coming from five, plus different systems, if not a dozen or more in, in some cases where different product lines have different systems and stuff like that. And so a data warehouse is needed to organize all of that stuff and, and, and keep it all in one place from a marketing or a customer experience, or even a sales team perspective, you want a customer data platform, because that's like, you know, predating CDPs, it was kind of like, there was a marketing database where you could pull stuff, or maybe that was maybe that was in like an email, like a Salesforce, you know, CRM or, you know, HubSpot or, you know, one one of those kinds of, of platforms, but you know, a CDP is a little broader reaching and, and have slightly different purpose than a, a traditional CRM, um, mm-hmm. a CDP, I look at it as it's like the next generation of that marketing database where, okay, just show me the things that are relevant to me being able to market and communicate with customers. And there's a lot of un- other information that the business needs, but I don't need to sift through all of that and process all of that in order to do my work and target customers and send them re- relevant content and, and things like that. And so, you know, I think, mm-hmm. um, CDPs function very well in that, in that way. And there's a, you know, it's a very broad definition of what a CDP even is, but I think it, it can often take a bit of time to figure out, you know, what does a team actually need in their CDP? Some of that does depend on access and how, how extensive their data warehouse or other, you know, data management tools are, um, you know, I think CDPs function very well from, for marketing and CX and, 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 and related teams to be able to get a subset of the data. That's very actionable and and usable. And then a data warehouse would just be that broader set of information. That's kind of, that a, a CDP may, may access parts of it, but. Um, it's more for the rest of the organization to be able to aggregate information and, and things like that.
1: Yeah. So Greg, if you were advising a company, uh, let's say mid-sized SaaS company on a first party data strategy, how would you structure that engagement? What what sort of a process would you take?
0: Yeah, sure. So you know, I, I I would want to start with really just kind of understanding what's currently in place. And, you know, what, what does the current infrastructure look like? You know, what, what are their, what are some of their current pain points as well as, as their goals? I mean, are they looking to unify lots of different types of data together, or are they really looking for, you know, a couple very singular to achieve a couple singular things? In which case that then kind of points to, okay, well, where are the gaps in the infrastructure and and the the usage of of the existing infrastructure or the you know the needs of of platforms and then you know i would really again often this is this there's there's a platform component to this but there's also a people in a process component to it too and so you know how are teams encouraged to get more customer information into systems you know our sales teams failing to fill out CRM data or, you know, or other things like that, or, you know, are we, are we being as proactive as we can about collecting mm-hmm. that zero party data that you were talking about and, and collecting first party data as well. So, you know, I, I, w- I would start there and then build a plan. This doesn't have to be something that you do it all at once either. This can be an iterative, uh, you know, an agile approach to all of this. Mm-hmm. And and how it's implemented, because for some organizations, there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done. And so that can happen over time. But really, if you if you understand what your goals are and you can prioritize those, then we can we can start small and, and iterate from there.
1: Yeah, excellent. And do you think that that a first party data strategy is equally important for a small company as opposed to an enterprise?
0: Um, I think a very small company may not need as robust a first-party data strategy i mean they, they need to collect customer data just like anybody else and mm-hmm. they're going to have similar needs from a sales and marketing perspective but i think at the enterprise level there's a, the need for you know greater personalization and greater just scaling of content so i think you know in the in the midsize i think there's probably there's a balance between both Is like you definitely need a first-party data strategy and in many cases some of those mid-sized companies are they need to be able to scale more easily because they don't have as you know as deep a bench of marketing teams and and things or data teams or, or things like that even so you know mm-hmm. in some cases they actually need a more robust or a, a, an easier way to make use of that of that data if, if nothing else
1: yeah yeah do you think greg that as this evolves and data becomes more and more critical that the smaller businesses become at an increasing disadvantage? Because the the more, from a marketing standpoint, the more you can utilize big data and feed AI within these various platforms, the better the results are going to be, the more competitive advantage you have. Is that going to basically just push out the smaller players that just simply don't have enough data or the ability to, to do much with that data? So is it, the promise of Google ads has always been a level playing field for the small guys. But is that promise going away in this new world of big data?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some of it def- definitely, I mean, you know, vol- volume of data and volume of good data will always be an advantage for the enterprise companies out there. And, you know, they often have the resources and Mm-hmm. and, and start so to be able to utilize it better as well. There are a lot of tools and the the concept of like the citizen data scientists and all that, you know, no no code, low code platforms that allow people to analyze data like that's mm-hmm. that's becoming more prevalent. And the challenge, though, to your point is you need good data to be a good citizen data scientist. Right. So like yeah. I, I do think there's going to be a gap. I, I, I think tools like, you know, whether it's Google ads or, or other ones that are able to aggregate and even if it's, you know, anonymized or whatever, but like aggregate data across sets can help towards leveling the playing field. But yeah, big companies do have an advantage and there will be more solution. I mean, right now, you know, big companies have like shared data clean rooms and and things like that. I think there's some solutions coming probably down the road that will democratize that a little bit for the smaller companies. But in the meantime, there is a bit of a gap.
1: Yeah. Well, Greg, this has been great. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I would have asked you or any, anything else that you believe would benefit our audience?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing here is there, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about a lot, but, you know, it, it's still in a, in a sense scratching the surface. But I think the important thing is to take a step and move forward without some kind of strategy and, and goals and, and a plan, of course. But like, you don't have to have thought all of this stuff through to the very end to start making a meaningful step as long as you have a plan in place. And that's just, there's no time like the present in, in that way. These, the gaps that we just talked about are not getting any smaller. Yeah, You know, that end of 2024 Google, you know, cookie deprecation date isn't getting any further away. Maybe they'll push it back. But like, these things are not getting any easier closer or anything like that. But technology mm-hmm. is getting easier to use. Platforms are generally getting cheaper to use for smaller and mid-sized businesses. So, you know, it, it's important to just get started yeah. and then, you know, build build as you go.
1: Absolutely. Don't wait for, for the world to change around you, but prepare for what's coming and uh, take the first step. It's often the hardest step to take. That's, I think, kind of a life life lesson, a broader life lesson yeah. too.
0: Yeah, it's not just about first-party data strategy. It's about anything. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for spending the time with me today, Greg. It's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, My main takeaway is what used to be the three-legged stool, people, process, and platform now has a fourth leg, which is data. So uh, I'm going to remember that one and um, think a little bit more about that. So thanks for sharing and and thanks for the great conversation today.
0: Thanks so much. It was great talking with you.
1: Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop.hop.online. Have a great day.